Ladies, gents and droids, welcome to Host, the podcast commentating on the world of STEM. I'm your host Lloyd, and accompanying me is our producer Snare. We're here to give you the latest intel on companies with either an awesome ethos or a brilliant central figure. Steve Jobs said that you need to stay hungry, stay foolish. We're all about finding which companies are hungry for growth and maybe a little bit foolish. In this episode, we invited Lawrence Oaks-Ash, co-founder and director of City Science, an Exeter startup using new applications of data analysis and statistical modeling to help cities become more sustainable. From energy use and transportation, reducing air pollution, and improving the quality of life for residents and visitors, City Science is trying to achieve it. If you want to hear about how autonomous vehicles will shape cities, or how Brexit will force businesses to change their methodology, then listen on. You achieved a first in maths at Durham University. Um, it's a pretty amazing degree, Lawrence. Um, when you're at uni, what would you say led to achieving such a high grade? And, and then really at the, the end of that, is there a piece of advice you'd give our listeners at university? I think, I think my advice would be learn to code. Um, my, my advice really would be you know, sure, ensure you do everything you can to get the best mark possible. You know, and I think that with hard work, and it, unfortunately it is only hard work, you know, everyone can achieve their goals at university. Uh, but it might not be the, the case that degrees are teaching you everything that you're kind of going to need to know for the workplace. Um, so, you know, whilst maths is perceived to be a great degree, and it is a great degree because it helps you think in certain ways, when you look at what we actually did, we were... You know, our examinations were all doing matrix multiplication by hand, you know, so we were a lot of mental arithmetic. So we really didn't get to use code enough. So, you know, I'd say to anyone who's out there from any kind of background, learn to code as soon as you can. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, that's a great piece of advice. Um, and, and then trying to get into your mind at that point. So you, you have this, this, uh, this maths degree. Um, had you at university established what type of career path you wanted to take? And then if perhaps you could let us know what, what that, um, that ended up being. I really hadn't thought about what I wanted to do. I was, um, in a state of denial, I think. I was very much pushing it away, pushing it away. And, you know, in, in my head, I thought I was going to be an academic. I thought I was going to stay in academia forever. Um, and it was only through working over summer holidays um, that I needed, I needed to find a job. So I, I hadn't got a plan. Everyone else had gone to all the milk rounds and done you know, lots of work trying to get in with employers, but I'd done none of that. And so the first job I had was, was just a job that I saw. I hadn't had a plan. Um, I was fortunate to get a job working um, as a portfolio analyst in, in a company called State Street. Um, and then from then, I, I basically then applied to the Lehman Brothers graduate program. Okay. And um, you were at Lehman Brothers um, at a, a relatively headline-worthy time. Um, <laughs> can you, so it was, what's really funny is that it sounded like you got really lucky getting the portfolio analyst role, not having a really gone through the milk rounds like so many people go through the terminal and then you you walked into Lehman Brothers which maybe wasn't quite as good luck just uh talk us through that Lawrence I think that it's funny how perceptions of Lehman Brothers have sort of changed from when people were applying I think because Lehman Brothers was the one that went bust at that point in time um I guess subsequent to that 
perception has changed and people kind of blamed Lehman Brothers for what was was actually a kind of collective crash that was caused by multiple actors and not just a single bank. Um, and actually, I think if you kind of think back to 2000, you know, when Lehman Brothers was in its, it really was, you know, a fantastic place to work. And the kind of, the people who were on my grad class at that time are all doing amazing things now. So I'm still in touch with, you know, most of them. And I, I honestly think it was a, at that time, Lehman Brothers was a machine. Uh, it was a great place to work. You know, it was on par with Goldman Sachs. So I think it taught me, taught me a lot. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have changed it in any way other than maybe Lehman Brothers not going bust. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, it's, it's, it's great that you got positives out of that. And I can remember that particular time, you know, working at, uh, a JP's, a Goldman or a Lehman was all, you know, completely tier one. And if you're somebody who is interested in maths and simulation, it must have been a very academic environment. It's similar to, you know, a whole crop of people who came from PhDs and moved to uh, Wonga, let's say, five years ago. Um, you know, obviously that has negative connotations in the press, but actually that crop of individuals who were really bright have all gone on and helped um, hugely either found or enable some really cool startups, uh, do some really successful things. Um, so, so no, that's, that's great. That's great to hear. Um, so just, just to finish on that point, I'm, I'm, mm. cur- I'm curious about when you left Lehman and then I, I think it was Nomura that you went to, to next yes. and ultimately became an executive direct director. So quite, quite young and, uh, in a really uh, senior responsible position. How was that period, that four year period after um, what really was a, a financial collapse in the market? I think there was a there was an interesting kind of feeding frenzy uh, for every all of the staff that were at Lehman Brothers. Um, so while the, the company had effectively um, gone, there, everyone was getting offers from lots of different places. So right. you know, Barclays had bought the US business. So I was actually in New, in New York at the time. Um, so I was for a couple of days on paper. I was part of Barclays. Um, and Nomura had bought the European business. Um, and so really, I kind of felt at that point in time, I had, I had my pick, you know, of places to go to. Um, and I guess Nomura, it was the team I, I'd grown up with. We were in a really strong position to take market share from everyone else. And so I came back to Europe thinking we can really do something amazing here. That, that segues me um, quite neatly onto, uh, onto just off, off work, off academia, yeah. The places it seems like your career's taken you. Um, yeah. So clearly you, you were in London. Uh, then you spent some time in New York. And uh, now your, um, your, your organization that you're the CEO of City Sciences is based in, um, Exeter. Um, yeah. you just talk us through some of the, the pros, the cons, the nuances of all those different areas. I don't know that I spent enough time in New York to really know, to really know what the cons are. I mean, I suppose. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was just having a fantastic time uh, <laughs> yeah. for, for the three months whilst I was there. Um, London, I grew up, so I'm from just outside London, from Essex. So I've grown up on the tube line. So I've been in London, apart from going to Durham, practically for, for my whole life. Um, I think when I first started in the city, I, I really got a buzz from being there. You know, just seeing people arrive at work, it was amazing to kind of see the the industry that was kind of underneath your feet yeah. but i think london is 
a you know let, let's be honest it's a very expensive place to be it's expensive to be as a startup because rents are high um, you've got to pay your staff more money than in other locations um, but equally the staff who are who are there you know their rents are high so they're getting higher wages but not necessarily a better living standard so my move to Exeter was really fate you know I don't know it was kind of a serendipitous move it wasn't something that I planned um, but I think as a as a place to be it's incredible I mean it's an amazing place to, to live it's an amazing place to work and I think with the right kind of ecosystem that we're trying to kind of develop here, you know, we do believe it's going to be part of the future here. I think it's going to, you know, it's a it's a tech hub to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and and if you could just, I mean, we've done a, an intro at the beginning, but if you could really give us um, some some insight into uh, city science and, mm. and, and 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 tell us. You know, what, what is it you guys, what problem are you guys trying to solve? What's the mission? Yeah. Okay. So the mission really is to help cities reimagine what's possible. Um, cities are really complex places and they're controlled by a number of actors. You know, there's, there's no one single authority that controls the city. Um, but those people who do have control of different aspects of it are working in fairly heavily regulated environments um they're, they're operating environment environments where they don't have the time to invest into processes and invest into new ways of doing things there's a lot of business as usual which kind of takes over the way that they they are forced to think about the world and i guess we really want to put kind of critical data-driven insights into the hands of the city's decision makers you know we want to help authorities answer the kind of the complex problems that are the problems that are emerging for things that they haven't got time to think about and ultimately we want to create products and services that help the city perform more efficiently and what are what are the challenges to doing that i can only imagine that um, a lot of it might be the bureaucracy i think that so when we kind of started out our the way we thought about what would be an amazing achievement was if we could get the NHS to invest in a cycle path. And I guess that sort of sums up for us the different silos that exist in the city. So you have huge amounts of, of money flowing, but that money doesn't necessarily, the kind of capital decisions that are being made aren't made across silos. They're made within the silos and within the regulatory frameworks that those organisations exist in. Yeah. Okay. Um, we know, for example, that a healthier living is going to, should, reduce costs for the NHS. But we don't know to what extent. And we don't know what the best ways of achieving healthy living living is. So for us, we sort of set out thinking, can we collect enough data? Can we get enough evidence to be able to show over a 10, 20, 30-year time horizon that it would make sense for the NHS to make a capital decision outside of its own silo? That was really, I guess, what we thought were that's ultimately what we think is the most exciting part of all of this data collection you know bringing together decisions and decision making processes that are currently within individual silos and Lawrence how did you get access to that data well I, we don't have access to that data yet so I think you know, the, the truth is that to be able to get to a point where 
you've got sufficient evidence. Yeah. You know, and the sort of evidence you'd need if you were doing a clinical trial to say that a certain intervention in a city is going to achieve a certain result. I mean, that is a huge amount of evidence. And that's a huge amount of data and it's a huge yeah. um, duration of monitoring to make sure that if, if that intervention is successful for a month, it isn't just a blip, you know, but, or if it's replicated somewhere else that you get the same result. So I think that kind of scientific approach to both monitoring those things is essential to then being able to make those decisions as you go into the future. But, you know, that's kind of, that's our 10, 20, 30 year vision for what a smart city could look like. That's not yeah. what we're able to achieve today. And what are you able to achieve today? Are you um, using some data sets to try and work out conceptually if you did have access to that data that this were possible? So we, we kind of got two main approaches. The first one is enhancing the efficiency of some key processes that exist in the city. So we're focusing there on, on transportation where we think that by combining data sets more efficiently, we can cut the time it takes to make um, the evidence available for a particular decision. So at the moment, if you want to create a road scheme, that will take you know between a year and two years. Um, but with data that you collect from multiple sources in a way that's easily ingested and with analytics on top of that, that fit within the regulatory frameworks of the transport department as it exists today, then those things should allow us to be able to do make those same decisions or make the evidence available for those same decisions within a week. So that's kind of what we're doing on an, on an efficiency front, really looking at how we can use digital technologies and, and data in an integrated way to make things more efficient uh, for the people who are currently kind of doing that work in, in the local authority. And then at the same time, once we've, once we've got that platform, what additional science can we do on top of that? So having kind of the data ingested is the, is the prerequisite to then doing much more detailed science about what's going on at particular junctions. How do people behave around the city? How do people behave um, in different conditions? How do people of different ages behave? You know, so there's lots and lots of ways in which we can kind of then begin to look at those behaviours and try and make different types of interventions than the ones we're making today. And this um, is, I'm assuming, mainly focused within Exeter at the moment. If you were to um, set the precedent and be able to get that traction in Exeter, would the plan very much be that this could be rolled out um, further within the UK? So I think there's a number of things that, that can be rolled out immediately. So you know, we're dealing a lot with national data sets, so a lot of the data sets that are kind of used locally are, are things that are the direct result of, you know, ONS or derivatives of the Office of National Statistics. Um, you know, we're using the geographies that have been defined nationally. So that's ordnance survey type geographies. You know, we're using the road network. So there's lots of different road networks, data sets that you can get. But we're trying to integrate all of those things. The instances that we're doing it in Exeter, I mean, they're all made, they're already replicable. So we're building everything with a view to it being something we could do in every city as soon as we've done it in Exeter. One of the things I picked up on there is obviously the road networks coming up a lot, uh, which makes sense. 
um, there's a lot of buzz and excitement and, and, and progression with companies like uh, Google and Tesla and Uber developing aut- autonomous vehicles. Is that something that you guys are working into models in the future? Do you have a view on just how soon that might be hitting the road? I, I think that um, you, you'll probably be familiar with the five levels of autonomy. Getting to a point where we have full autonomy is some way off, probably in the you know, 20s, 30s, 2040s. Um, but I think increasingly we're going to see a kind of trend towards um, autonomy. And I think there's lots of different ways in which that will affect the transport network. So I, I'll pick a couple of technologies. Uh, there's a company called um, Easy Mile. They, they make pods similar to the pods you've seen in um, Milton Keynes, Bristol, yeah. the, the pods that they have working around um, Greenwich. Those sorts of pods I kind of see as providing last mile solutions on kind of fixed routes, but fixed routes that you could change at, at different times of the day. Um, so that's the sort of autonomy that could exist with some infrastructures, you, you, you'd need to change the roads, you could keep them off-road, you could keep them away from pedestrians, but you could serve commuter traffic through those things, for example. That, I think, is something that would be much more palatable to cities um, because you'd be mitigating all the risks associated with the fully autonomous vehicles and you could be potentially providing um, last-mile solutions or you know, connecting up parts of the city that may not be connected today. Other types of technology that um, you know will come sooner are things like platooning. So Scania is working on a big project where they're looking at linking trucks. Whilst at the moment, you know, each of the trucks have drivers. As time progresses, the number of drivers will be reduced, and you know the the other trucks will follow the lead truck. So it will still effectively be controlled by a human, but with some rules. The fleet of vehicles will follow you know the lead vehicle that sort of thing i think we'll have oh go on that's um, that's really interesting um and kind of connected to that are ai systems and the ethics of using those those types of technologies in cities and i'm curious as to see what um your uh, your opinions are of ai and how you think it's going to shape ethics uh, societies and cities which you are inherently uh, in the business of? I, I think that it's a very difficult question and I think, you know, jumping towards a world where there's fully autonomous vehicles, um, the question of who the driver is I think is a really kind of pertinent ethical and legal question because who's going to be responsible, who ultimately takes responsibility for the performance of that vehicle if there's a an accident whose fault is it and what sorts of logic should be programmed into that system in order to make certain decisions if an accident or if risk factors kind of emerge that would make an accident likely i think all of those things are really difficult you know there's difficult thought processes that the designers of those systems need to go through and there's also kind of difficult questions that society needs to ask about where the balance of risk should lie. And I think there's also a kind of a statistical and hype question um, as well, because you can imagine the kind of press of, or the negative press that could come from a, a number of crashes, you know, and I think because we are at an early stage of the technology, even in testing, you know, there will be more and more 
um, incidents involving autonomous vehicles, like the uh, Tesla incident. But I think that those those negative examples of what can happen need to be put in a context of the kind of wider statistics around drivers and driver safety. You know, otherwise we kind of we do we do need to look at it kind of analytically and say, are are autonomous systems improving safety overall? And is is that a benefit yeah. that we should actually continue to push, regardless of you know some some incidents that have created kind of negative sentiment around that sector? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, would you buy an autonomous vehicle yourself? Say they were around in twenty years and they were completely normal. Would you buy one? I would. I would absolutely buy one because I think just the half an hour commute that I do that's wasted time, and if I can sit. You know, in the back of a vehicle and actually do something, do some work or, you know, have some entertainment, then that's time that I'm getting back. And I think that the kind of the real challenge for uh, policymakers as we move to a world where inevitably there are going to be more autonomous systems is what happens to people who are currently taking, say, public transport? What happens to people who are currently doing or uh, avoiding doing long-distance journeys because they don't want to be sat at the wheel. You know, I think, so one of the risks with autonomous vehicles is that because they make it so easy for you to do some some other things whilst you're travelling, that actually they have um, the effect of driving up demand for travelling. And from a, an environmental and sustainable perspective, that's so true. I mean, on, on the other hand, so this is where I... I'm kind of undecided as to whether there's going to be a, a positive environmental impact from autonomy or a kind of negative environmental impact from autonomy. Because as a consumer and, a kind of, and, a, and, a, and a, as a road user, I can see why I would choose an autonomous vehicle over my you know, driving myself or going via public transport. But you know, as a kind of technologist, I can also see how if we can integrate these vehicles at a system level, we can get more optimal solutions for the system. So the kind of we've got this trade-off between what humans might decide to do in response to autonomous vehicles and what the systems themselves might allow cities to be able to do in terms of optimizing the flows, making this, the system more efficient. So with those kind of two pulling factors, maybe we end up somewhere in the middle and it, it stays virtually the same as it is today. Who knows? And with um, regards to like, just the huge amount of innovation that's going on right now and taking a five, ten year view, well, what are some of the things that you're seeing in digital transformation um, that excite you, Lawrence, and, and where would you predict some of the next hotspots are? I think that's, I mean, I think that the key thing that's driving us is the digitization of infrastructure. So we, Okay, so I think there's a lot of hype around machine learning and you know artificial intelligence, and you know in two years' time there'll be another hype cycle. So the, the thing that we're thinking about a lot is stochastic optimization. So combining optimization processes with the probability that a certain state will be the case in the future. So I think you know that's the area that we're looking at to, because I think it, it cuts across all of the infrastructure. It cuts across. Transportation, because you know, there's a probability that someone's going to need a taxi at six o'clock from Exeter St David's train station. Um, how do you determine where the optimal position of your fleet is at any one position in time? That's a very, very difficult question. We're seeing the same sorts of questions in in the energy market. So, 
Let's take a simple example of a solar cell and a battery. Um, you need to have an optimal uh, charge and discharge profile that the battery follows, but that's based on um, a forecast solar profile over the day. It's based on a forecast consumption profile over the day, and those things are probabilistic. So for us, kind of the the thing that people aren't talking about is is stochastic optimization. Um, in terms of digital and digitization itself, um, it's a really interesting question because you know I kind of think I've witnessed a huge change in financial services from when I started to you know when I left the city. Uh, when I started, I I thought that the city was highly digitized. You know, I thought that we were doing lots and lots and lots of things with data. Data was readily available. Um, price, you know, you never had a problem finding out what the price of something was. You know, Bloomberg was a very mature technology that was able to, you know, give you all of the information systems, that you, you, all of the information that you needed to do things in real time. And yet, whilst I thought um, we were highly mature from a data perspective, highly mature from a digital perspective. The change that I witnessed from 2000 through to kind of 2011 was a step change again. We went from a position where there was no, nobody knew what high frequency trading was, nobody knew what algorithm, algorithmic trading was, um, and humans were doing a bulk, you know, the majority of the work to 2010, 2011, and over 60% of market volumes were being performed by algorithms. So even in, in, in that sector where we were very highly digitized to start with, still huge changes can, can kind of occur. So I think when you're looking at infrastructure, something that's really not digitized at all today, it's going to be really exciting to sort of observe what happens over the next 10, 20 years. Yeah, so I mean, thinking the time frame when you you at the beginning of your career to now in in finance, it's it's just incredible that that talk that change that you've just talked us through. I mean, we're on the talent side, um, obviously having a bit a bit of a later but a, a disruptive time now, where uh, you know AI and machine learnings starting to automate um, some of that talent pipeline, which. Is, is about time um, that we do that. Um, I was just thinking, uh, I'm, I'm imagining for your um, organization mission to be met, then it's so much about getting the brightest and most loyal and culturally right um, academics and individuals. Um, you just talk us through uh, what it is that you look for in, in people who are going to you know, join the mission and, and perhaps some of the challenges just on that AI point in recruitment I was talking about. That, that at the moment you have? Um, so I guess, you know, first of all, technical capability is, is one of the key prerequisites. And so we do do a lot of testing. You know, we do, um, we've got different tests for optimization roles or for data science roles or for you know, software development roles. Um, and then once kind of we know that someone's at a certain kind of technical level, then for me, I, I kind of have quite a simple approach, really. I look at three, three things. I look at what I call grit, flair, and communication. So grit is really, you know, do I think this person's got the, the resilience to solve problems? Because I think one of the things that is, is important when you're looking at really challenging 
situations and you know really technical work sorts of work which we're doing um, a lot of it's about you know having the attitude to continue to come back to that problem you know having that understanding that you know there will be setbacks and we won't necessarily get everything right first time um, and, and really that's kind of it's the desire to sell to, to solve problems you know that I'd kind of call as, as grit um, flair I think it's it's always nice to be surprised by by you know candidates I think it's really exciting when someone can show you they've gone you know beyond the call of duty or has just come as a problem in a, in a way that you kind of didn't expect so having a really great mix of different thinkers in a team is a really exciting way to kind of create innovation so I will always be you know excited by some flair um, and then it, it, it might sound too simple or too simplistic but communication the ability to clearly articulate you know complex ideas without ambiguity that is a really difficult skill for even some of the most technically minded people, you know, being able to communicate with the team and kind of share knowledge within the team is, is as important as it is to be, you know, technically strong individually. Yeah, that no, absolutely makes so much sense. And uh, I'm just curious, how do you test for that, that flair element at interview? Well, there is no test for flair. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what's, what's the best example of flair at interview that you come across? <laughs> Often it's it's someone showing us a, a visualization that we hadn't seen before. It's 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 really about seeing something you haven't seen before. Seeing someone come at a problem in a completely different way. Um, seeing that someone's got absorbed in the problem and become passionate about the problem in the ways that we want to see them do so in the workplace. I think there's many ways uh, in which you know people can exhibit exhibit that flair. That's interesting from a hiring perspective. But just to go on to um, a more um, political questioning. I'm really curious as to your opinion of Brexit and how you see the future of Britain's tech hubs surviving uh, Brexit. I mean, obviously, we're, we're facing a general election in a few weeks, um, which could, uh, you know, surprise us and bring about a very interesting coalition of the left, or we could see a massive conservative majority, which would mean you know, there are, there's a potential there for a very hard Brexit. I mean, some people say soft Brexit, some people say hard Brexit. Um, uh, what I'm curious to hear about is your your opinion of, of what's going to happen to Britain's tech hubs um, if we do face a hard Brexit. What do you think, um, I mean, how do you think London's going to survive and then Exeter and uh, Nottingham where Cap 1 are, um, Manchester, how do you think they're going to survive that, that challenge? Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of... I haven't really worried too much myself about the different the, the zoology of the different types of Brexits that we might face. Um, you know, for us, we are we don't really think about um, countries. You know, we, we're very much focused on cities. You know, and I think that there's a growing sense in which we are reaching out to cities around the world. You know, reaching out to places like uh, you know Detroit, to Copenhagen, to Helsinki, to Riga. You know, we think of ourselves as a kind of city network, um, and in you know thinking about it in that in those sense, those terms, I don't necessarily think we will have any problems exporting whatever type of Brexit we have. I think the key thing is can you can you create something that's really of value to 
other cities globally, you know, and can you get on a plane and go and talk to those people who are, you know, they might not share exactly the same problem, but can you take the problem that you've faced in the cities that you've looked at in the UK and apply it to cities that you're you know, talking to globally? So I, I kind of think that it's going to be potentially more hard work, but I think making us get on a few flights to go and make some more relationships is possibly a good thing in the long long term. Do you, I'm curious, do you have any um, uh, any cities in mind that you really admire that you think use uh, really clever ways of sustainability and, and data? I, I don't, I think everybody at the moment is suffering the same kind of problems that we suffer from. Um, you know, there's a lot of hope about what data can do, but in practice, data's locked up in in commercial silos, it's it's in in formats that aren't readily accessible. If it is accessible, then it's it's not you know it's not easy to then overlay it with someone else who's produced a similar data set uh, that has a different kind of schema. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done with data to get it to a point where it's it's usable. And then I think the kind of the, the second thing about being able to monitor changes in real time, that's really where we'd love to be able to get to. I don't know that anyone's doing that sufficiently. Um, so, it, you know, obviously it's about being able to deploy more sensors, but I think the number of sensors you need to deploy to get, you know, the coverage required is, is it's not there yet. Cool. Lawrence, um, we're, we're nearly going to wrap up. Um, I just okay. trying to think if there's anything else that the listeners could take from you personally. Obviously, um, somebody who's um, really successful and visionary. Um, are there any uh, behavioural things that uh, we might like to hear? Any routines uh, that you could talk us through that have, have have got you to this position? Well, to be to be entirely honest, I don't I don't really think of myself as successful. I mean, we we've, we've got a very flat structure. City science, and I kind of, I am just the jack of all trades that tries to tie it all together, you know, to make sure that one, we've got a vision set, two, we're making progress towards our goals, and three, that you know our employees, customers, and investors are all happy, um, you know. And I think as a team, we're we're all on this journey together, and any success we have, you know, is a function of the contributions of everyone. So I certainly don't think you know success is necessarily an individual thing anyway. Um, cool. So, it's, so, so it's, it's modesty, exuding modesty, right? <laughs> I, I also think there's a kind of there's a perception of success that it's a there's a final state. Uh, I don't think there's a kind of final state in which you can look back and go, "I'm successful. I can stop now." I think that probably what you find is that people who are considered successful just have a have a relentless desire to just keep doing new things, you know. So actually, success is a perpetual state, and I think my wife would just tell me to just stop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any, like, particular um, hobbies or quirks that you would attribute to your kind of um, ambitious state of mind? Do you um... Perpetual movement. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's... Um, I, I just enjoy... I enjoy work, and I don't think that... For me, it doesn't feel like hard work. You know, thinking about these things, it's, I mean, I think we're, we're in incredible times. And I think if you can get excited and passionate about the things that you're doing, then it stops feeling like work. Obviously, there are kind of, you know, there are hard days, but, um, you know, I, I, 
I, I love the journey we're on. Okay. But um, that's awesome. That's some really fascinating stuff there. So thank you so much. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. I'm going to leave you with a quote by Elon Musk. When something is important enough, you do it, even if the odds are not in your favour. Follow, like and subscribe at the Host app and on iTunes. Host, over and out.